Our passage for this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, up to chapter 2, verse 2. So if you do have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there to 1 Corinthians, and we'll read the passage together. And then we'll talk about the centrality of the cross. All right? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 10. First Corinthians 1.10 and following. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul. And I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, that no man should say you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ, verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ should not be made void. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever. I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, and not many mighty, not many noble, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not 
that he might nullify the things that are. That no man should boast before God, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Verse 2. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. May God bless his word to us this morning. I'll be with you um, by your gracious invitation this week and two more weeks after. And all three weeks will be on the theme of the cross. Today I want to talk to you from this passage about the centrality of the cross and preaching the gospel. Next week we'll talk about being crucified with Christ the normal Christian life. And then the last week, I want to talk to you about the three crosses of Calvary. So today, our text this morning is from 1 Corinthians, where Paul, the apostle, demonstrates his pastor's heart for the church that he founded, that you can read about in Acts chapter 16. And in writing to this church, he knew that the Christians there in Corinth, from messengers that he had, although it was a diverse and growing church with a lot of spiritual gifts, they were plagued by a number of problems. And you read all about them over 16 chapters. In fact, the Corinthian church had enough problems that... um, we are tempted to think as the Corinthian church, among all the churches of the New Testament church, as the problem child. But we ought to think about ourselves. If the Lord were to send us an epistle from an apostle to the church in Chewila, what would he have to say about us here? I think the Corinthian church is like almost every church, and God in his wisdom chose that it should be part of the New Testament canon, that we should read about their issues even while we think about our own issues. It's one thing to propose to follow Jesus Christ. It's quite another thing to actually do it. And it's quite another thing to do it corporately because getting along is quite challenging, don't you know? Amen? Come on. Help me. I'm weary. Chief among their problems was an essential arrogance. The Greeks as a culture generally thought of themselves as amazingly wise and amazingly sophisticated. And on top of that, the Corinthian church considered themselves amazingly gifted with all manner of spiritual gifts. Arrogance surely was the Corinthian territory and not ours. Amen? 
And so he uses the occasion of their failures in attitude, their essential arrogance, and now writing to them about divisions among them. To highlight for them a great theological doctrine, which is just not a doctrine, but it is the core of the Christian faith. And the antidote for all that ails them is in the essentials of the Christian faith and specifically in the cross of Christ. Paul is not just any pastor, but he is their founding pastor. Not just theirs, but to a whole number of churches in the Mediterranean world that he founded during his missionary journeys, which we read about in the book of Acts. Indeed, Paul was not just their pastor or their founding pastor, but he was an apostle called and sent by Jesus Christ. Most of you know that apostle means sent one. And indeed, Paul commissioned and deployed by Christ was sent to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He knew his calling, he knew his master, he knew his mission, and he did his work well. And he focused on the fundamentals in his work. As an apostle in every church, Paul laid the foundation for his churches, concerning himself ultimately with the fundamental truths of the gospel. Some pastors and preachers go on rabbit trails constantly. The Apostle Paul didn't have time for many rabbit trails, although some say he has many in his epistles. But that's because you just don't read well. Paul never falters. And what we have in the New Testament from him is the inspired voice of the Holy Spirit giving us truth that we desperately need. Paul did lay a foundation like a solid rock for us. Did we not sing that this morning? On Christ the solid rock I stand. The Apostle Paul was an apostle indeed. And although people accused him of not being among the real apostles that Jesus chose in his earthly ministry. He was an apostle par excellence. He laid the foundation of Jesus Christ and he laid no other but that. In fact, he refers to that in chapter 3, just uh, digressing for a second. Also in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 and 11, he talks about his apostolic work of laying that important foundation of Christ for his churches. He says in 3, 10, According to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, And another is building upon it, but let each man be careful how he builds upon it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul was faithful and true to his calling, and the Apostle Paul was no fool. He taught them the truth from day one when he founded that church in Corinth. And as a pastor now, as well as an apostle. He's writing this letter to them to help them with their issues. And as a pastor, he knows that the solution for every problem that they have in their church is to return to the fundamentals of the faith. It doesn't matter what the issue is. 
what the problem is, what the distraction is, what the dysfunction is in our churches. The solution to making all things right, making all things well, so there is peace in the church and our souls are at rest, so that shalom can reign, is to return to the fundamentals of the Christian faith. And this Paul does here. And indeed, in all of our churches, whether it's in Paul's time or in the, in the first century, or in our time in the 21st century, the cure to all that ails us is to return to the fundamentals and reorder ourselves according to the bedrock truths of the gospel. And I'm not preaching a sermon because I think you guys are off track in any way. I just like the passage. It's what the Lord led me into for today. So don't be offended yet. (laughs) But sometimes when we get off track or get distracted or just lose our focus, the best thing to do is just to go back to the beginning. Like in the movie The Princess Bride, you'll remember, right? The scene you said, go back to the beginning. So here I am. Back to the beginning. Inigo Montoya. Is it disputable what the fundamental of the fundamentals of the Christian faith is? Is there any doubt as to what the bullseye of our faith is? What is at the core of all of our convictions in the Christian faith? It is not. It was not disputable with the Apostle Paul. Who in the opening chapters of this epistle, as he begins to deal with their problems, his words resonate with the core truth of the gospel, which is the cross of Christ. Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is square one. That is the bullseye. That is the starting point. That is home base. That tells you everything that you need to know to get launched in your Christian life, to know Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now we read here that they were separating themselves in the church or dividing and in their pride and arrogance. They had a party spirit and some people said, I'm Paul's man. I'm Peter's man. I am of Apollos. And some were more spiritual than all of them and said, I belong to Christ. Whoa, you got it nailed. What are these divisions and what is the remedy for it? Paul wants to bring them back to one place, the cross. And it permeates this section, and I want to point out five things to you here where we see how the cross of Christ is highlighted by him as he begins to address all that ails them in Corinth. Number one, the cross is Christ's unique work on our behalf. We may have pastors, we may have preachers, we may have elders and deacons, we may have evangelists and prophets, we may have praise singers, we may have Sunday school teachers, but there's only one who laid down his life a ransom for many. Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's where we start. And Paul is saying to them right off the bat, 
what are these divisions among you? Why are you separating into parties over your favorite pastor or preacher? Who are they compared to Jesus Christ? Was Paul crucified for you, he says, right? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? So in this one problem, he brings them back to what he hopes will be some sound thinking by bringing them just back to Jesus. The magnificence of Jesus in his person and the greatness of his work on our behalf, the cross. There were three crosses on Calvary, but one, only one of them was effective to remedy what ails man. Of the three who were called criminals that day, only one was a saint. And one man died to save the many on that day. So let's, let's lift Christ up high and his cross and realize that the cross is Christ's unique work on our behalf. No one did that work but him. No one saves but Christ. It is so popular these days to say all religions are basically the same. And I say, baloney. No one gave their life for me, save Jesus Christ. Not Muhammad, not Buddha, right? Not Krishna, not Confucius. No great ancestor, no great religious philosopher, not Socrates, not Plato. No one has done for me what Jesus has done for me. The indispensable personality doing the indispensable work on my behalf is Jesus Christ. And so to straighten out our muddle-headed thinking about all kinds of things, we need to come back to him, to Christ alone, right? Who on that cross gave his life for us. Paul knew that and he starts there. Secondly, we see in this passage that the cross is the heart of the gospel. Look at verse 17 and 18 here. It's very interesting. Paul wrote to them, verse 17 and 18, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not in cleverness of speech that the cross of Christ should not be made void. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. What was Paul's preaching all about? What was his message? Well, he preached the gospel, he says. But then in the next breath, going from 17 to 18, he calls his preaching the word of the cross. And he is using those almost interchangeably there. That the gospel is about the cross. And woe unto us if we preach a Jesus or think we're preaching a gospel and leave the cross out of it. Leave the blood out of it. Leave the sacrifice and the pain and the suffering and the humiliation out of it. It is core. There is no preaching of the gospel without preaching the cross of Christ. Right? They are synonymous. It should go without saying. But it cannot with us and it does not with Paul. He calls the gospel the word of the cross. That's very interesting as you think about what does gospel mean, right? It's good news in the Greek, right? 
It's a good evangelon, right? Good news. How ironic or paradoxical that a cross should be called good news. It was not great in the moment, but it was great in the afterglow. It was not great for the suffering servant who cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But it was glorious in what was really happening there, where at the end of the afternoon at 3 o'clock he said, It is finished. Not his breath, not his life, but his work. Perfectly completed. A sacrifice made on our behalf. It was awesome. And like so many things that God loves to do in the world, he takes things that are just terrible, takes things that are ridiculous, as Paul says later in the chapter, takes things that are weak and despised, and he loves to do a great turnaround, doesn't he? And make the worst thing ever into the best thing ever. That happened in my personal life, and the only reason I'm standing here before you today is because I got saved as a teenager because of the worst thing ever in our lives as a family. My little sister died in a snow avalanche. Terrible, wretched event. Painful to think about even now after 42 years. But God made the worst thing that ever happened to our family the best thing that ever happened to our family. Because of that accident, my father bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. Because of that accident, I bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. 1975. Because of that accident, my brother bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. Because of that accident, I have Christian children who are missionaries and pastors. The worst thing ever in the hands of God is something to work with. But those things are nothing compared to Jesus. As Peter preached in the book of Acts in the opening chapters, what you did for evil, God turned out for good. Just like the Joseph story. You crucified Jesus in ignorance and you put to death the prince, the righteous one. But God has raised him from the dead and declared him both Lord and Christ. Well, the cross was terrible. But it is good news. We'll talk about why in a minute. So when we're sharing the Christian faith, people, do not be ashamed of the cross. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. It is core. On the streets of Chewila, when you're down there at the little cozy nook coffee place or whatever that's called down there, my favorite little muffin place, and you're chatting with people, you may share with them how awesome your church is or how eloquent your pastor is or how amazing your elder board is or how sweet your new building is. your fine programs, your changed life, your community activism. But none of those things are the gospel. None of those things save a soul. They are means that God may use. But the heart of the message that we have to share with people is that there is a redeemer. 
Thank you, oh God, my Father, for giving us the Son, right? That is the gospel, Christ and him crucified. It is the heart of our message. And I am afraid in trying to be relevant these days and not offensive, sometimes we share everything but the cross of Christ. How will anyone be saved? if they receive nothing from us but little bowls of pablum, soggy cornflakes, jello. Give them the meat. Give them the beef. Tell them the truth that a Savior has come and gave his life a ransom for many because you needed someone to pay for your sins. And without him, you will surely perish takes a little bit of stiff oatmeal in the morning to get ready to say that to folks, but that's what we need to do. The cross is the heart of the gospel. Verse 23, Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. See it? Heart of the message. Not just Jesus and his love, Jesus and his cross. That's the core The cross is uh, Christ's unique work on our behalf. The cross is the heart of the gospel message. Number three, the cross was and is foolishness to the world. And he elaborates quite a bit in this passage on that point. See verse 18 again. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then again, verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. The gospel was no easier to preach then than it is now. We think, well, we have such an anti-Christian bias in our country these days. How can we possibly evangelize? Oh, it's the best opportunity yet. The darker it is, the more piercing is the light, if it should ever appear, in corners of your life. Paul says that it was foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. I just want to explain that briefly. Many of you have probably heard this before, but the reason that the cross was foolishness to the Greeks is that the Greeks appreciated humanity in its perfection, in its ideal state. The perfect man was both wise and strong. And Jesus hanging on the cross appears to be neither He is not the victor there. He looks like the loser there. He is not strong, but he is the epitome of a humiliated man. Suffering at the hands of those who have power over him, insulted by all those who stood around him. And at the end of it all, he died, scorned, shamed, insulted by those crucified on his side. And as the gospel was preached in the Mediterranean world and those who were saturated with a Greek culture 
You know, we still talk about guys that look like a Greek god, right? What does that mean? It's Pete Thompson, right? <laughs> Behold the man, right? <laughs> I'm just kidding with my brother, right? And in our American culture, we have our own idea of the perfect man. I think now the perfect man in our culture is some kind of a buttercup, but it didn't used to be that way. Snowflake, sorry, then snowflake is the word. Yes, it is. Eight weeks and we'll have that. For the Jews, the cross was called a stumbling block. And the reason for that is because when you preach Jesus as the Christ, those coming from a Jewish tradition familiar with the Old Testament scriptures had a certain portrait in mind of what the Messiah was. Their messianic portrait was a partial portrait. It was incomplete. But the portrait they had of the coming Messiah was of a conquering king, one who would deliver Israel from her oppressors, which they had certainly in this time under the Romans, And Jesus on the cross does not look like a conquering anything. He is the one who was vanquished. And so a lot of them had a hard time with that. Until an able teacher or preacher was able to unfold the scriptures for them and show them that their Old Testament portrait of the Messiah did not include some very important things. Number four, the cross is the power of God, which Paul says several times in here. Verse 18, the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Who can testify to that, that the cross of Christ changed your life and rocked your world? And his power is demonstrated in your entire Christian career. Sure we can. It says it again in verse 24. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. I want to just elaborate on this one point just a little bit as we begin to wrap up. How is the cross the power of God? It does look like weakness when you don't know the whole storyline. But I'll give you several reasons how the cross is the power of God. Number one, it is the exact fulfillment of the entire Old Testament canon. And anybody who knows their Old Testament and then takes a good look at the cross has seen the wow factor there. There is something amazingly going profound going on there, Jesus on that cross and what he did, what he said and what people said to him and what people did to him. It is not just a random, unfortunate development in the career of Jesus of Nazareth. But in fact, the cross of Jesus is the high climax of the storyline of the Old Testament that began in Genesis 3.15, right? The proto-evangelon there where it says, 
that the serpent will have his head crushed, though he bruises the heel of the seed of the woman. And goes from Genesis all the way through to Malachi, who said, And the Lord who you seek will suddenly come, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And those of you who know your Old Testament well, you know how Jesus and his suffering, Jesus and his cross is writ large all through the Old Testament. Not just in the sacrificial system of the lambs that were offered constantly, especially the Passover lamb. But we see him in the story of Abraham and Isaac going up that mountain for his only son to be offered there carrying the wood of his sacrifice on his back as he went up that hill. What is that? That is Jesus, people, in the story. It is Jesus in the story of Joseph, who is betrayed by his brothers and left for as good as dead, but saved by God and exalted to the right hand of the king. That is not Joseph. That is Jesus. He is in Psalm 22 where he cries out, as he sees his bones and the people wagging their heads and mocking him and cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, which is an amazing chapter to read as it details the suffering servant of God. looks just like Jesus to me. Oh, the cross is the power of God. Because it is the proof of the reality of that storyline of redemption that is like a golden thread woven all through the Old Testament. And the word of God is not in vain. Every utterance of his mouth shall be fulfilled. And God's greatest word, spoken most often, is about a coming Savior, Jesus Christ and him crucified. The cross is the power of God also because it was Jesus' choice. It is not weakness. It was his amazing strength that brought him there to Calvary. As he said in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. That is not weakness. That is power in sacrifice. And there is much about true manhood in that, by the way. Much in there about virtuous humanity for man and woman and child in that. Jesus was not robbed of his life. He said in John 10, I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. Who says that? Jesus Christ, my God and my Savior. And as I continue to digress, the third reason why the cross is indeed the power of God is that in that cross, God satisfied all righteousness. As it says in Romans, in the cross, God is shown to be just and the justifier of those who trust in him. The great 
moral dilemma for God is how can he forgive us and still be a just God? How can he tell us that the wages of sin is death and then let us off the hook? A parent who never follows through is not excellent. Spank that boy. Give him that time out. Don't tell him you're going to do it and then give him ice cream. Be just. Be consistent. Be strong. The great question is how can God forgive sinners and say that his law still stands? Well, ingeniously, he did it through the cross where he is both just and merciful because we have a substitutionary sacrifice. Sin was not let off the hook on that day. It was all laid on his shoulders because he willingly was led like a lamb to the slaughter and took upon himself all our sins and all our iniquities. And so the punishment was meted out But the substitute is there. For someone stepped in front of you in the line and took your place and said, Ah, Mr. Kissman, you indeed deserve hell. But I'll take all the fires onto myself for you. And if you would trust in me, I will indeed be your savior. My sacrifice, unlike yours, is perfect and acceptable in the sight of the Father. That is a powerful thing. That is the divine transaction that was worked out there on Calvary, you guys. And there's much to be said about that. But it is powerful. It is powerful. And if you can figure out how in layman's term to explain that to folks on the street, that sin is real and its price is awful, both in this life and in the life to come. And yet God has made a way and bridged the great divide between his holiness and our sinfulness. That is significant. That is profound. That is the greatest philosophical truth that could ever be explored. It is the power of God. A fourth, the cross is the power of God because there he not only canceled the debt of sin for us, but he triumphed over the devil and made the devil and his angels a spectacle of defeat. On that day. And what the people saw there with the naked eye wasn't the half of it when Jesus died at three o'clock in the afternoon on Calvary. All the angels in heaven and the devils in hell realized what was going on that day for you and for me. Powerful, spiritually significant. Surely the heavens and the earth trembled that day because of what was going on there. It was awesome. I thought, well, why is Paul talking about all this stuff just because people in the church weren't getting along, (laughs) right? I mean, what brilliance as they were bickering over little things to bring them back to the main thing And say, how can it possibly be that there is competition and selfish and arrogance among you when you all ought to be rallying together around the one great personality that makes your life even possible, both now and for eternity? And how he accomplished it 
at a great cost to himself and benefit to you. Come back to Jesus. That's how we get our act together. Come back to Jesus. Come back to the cross and kneel there and humble yourself. And how he loves to show the topsy-turvy methodology of God as he goes through verses 28, 29, 30, and 31 there. I close just by pointing to you how he sums it all up in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And he just reminds them when he planted that church and first pastored that little flock, what his methodology and focus was. Chapter 2, verse 1, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This was Paul's one and only message when he started the church and now as he's nurturing the church he wants to talk about Jesus and the meaning of the cross for us not only for our salvation justification but the significance of the cross for our ongoing Christian life for it is a great moral motivator for us to think about the great one humbling himself even to the point of the cross. And how can we, any of us, be on our high horse magnifying our own supposed virtues and trying to minimize other people around us? There is level ground at the foot of the cross and we are all the same there in his eyes. And Paul said, you know, when I first came to you guys, I determined, I had a, personal rule that I was not there to promote Paulinism, right? I was not there to promote pharisaical lifestyle. When I came to you, I had one thing on my mind to share with you, and that was Jesus Christ. But he didn't stop there. He said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I will talk to you next week about the further significance of the cross for you and living out your daily Christian experience and how it relates to things going on in your own head and things going on in your relationship with other people. But know this, the cross is not a minor theological topic. It is primary. It is core. And never forget this. Jesus said, whoever wishes to come after me must what? Deny himself and? Yeah, so you don't even need to come next week now. (laughs) What is amazing to me is in this day and age when Christianity is available to everyone everywhere in this nation at least 
Books abound, blogs abound, Bibles abound, churches and preachers abound. But the Christian church is getting extremely sloppy. I use that in a horrible, generally, you know, sense, um, stereotyping perhaps. But it is amazing what is preached in pulpits these days. And there is a version of our faith. There are versions of our faith that get put out there by a lot of people seeking to attract a following, seeking to build an organization that stripped Christianity of the cross. Not only stripping Jesus from his primary mission and the need for it because we are sinners, but in our following after Jesus, no mention of cross. But for Jesus and for us, it is cross, then crown. And a lot of folks are reversing that crown now, cross, hopefully never. It is not the way. How right it is that our hymn book is full of glorious songs about the cross. I wonder if the new age hymn books will have as many. Never let these go. And if your worship team strays and errs, you get them in line. But the cross is core. And so it may be that we shall always sing when I survey the wondrous cross, right? The old rugged cross. Lead me to Calvary. That's where I need to go. Not just once, but often and always. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Right? Power in the blood. Going to be singing that in Forsyth, Montana on Labor Day weekend. I guarantee it. They always pick it. Like hoot nanny picking guitars and they do those songs. At the cross, near the cross, Jesus paid it all. Glory to his name. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Right? Redeemed through his infinite mercy, his child and forever. I am. There's a version of Christianity that is allergic to the cross and allergic to the blood that was spilt. And what a tragedy is to lose the core of the message and the price that was paid for love's sake for us, right? For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. We should be like the Apostle Paul who said in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Chawila, come to the cross. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for that indescribable gift that is ours because you sent your only begotten Son. 
I pray that you help us, Lord, who have followed you for many years to never become weary with the message of the cross, to take for granted your grace. And I pray that you grant us the courage to share it and to share it well and to share it often, that a great price was paid for the sake of love. And Lord, may you use this congregation, these dear folks, to bring others to where we have been, Lord Jesus, to the foot of your cross. We pray in your name.